Good morning. I am Josh, and I am uh, so honored to be able to, uh, to preach this uh, to you um, today. It is, uh, I believe that John is um, just so good at, at weaving together so many themes and so much history and so much uh, theology and, and, and just packs it in there so beautifully. Uh, so it's a, it's a real joy to, to, to walk through these, these uh, passages each week as we are through our series here. You know, as I was looking through this and thinking about this, I think generally speaking, um, people, maybe uh, many of us, all of us, uh, generally just want to make the right decision. Uh, I think there may be some outliers. I don't know. I don't want to be like the guy who says everything, you know, all or never, always. Uh, there's got to be a, someone that's trying to make a bad decision, I guess. Uh, but even to them, that probably seems like a good decision. So maybe at that point, we're all just trying to make good decisions. We're trying to make the right decision. You know, when it comes to things like careers or, or schools, or houses or kids or, or, um, or pets or products or, or spouses, we, we really research. We try to figure out what is the right thing there. I mean, I was lamenting as I was thinking about this, this sermon here. Long gone are the days when I could just grab uh, uh, my sister's 17 magazine and fill out the, the one-page survey and find all the answers to what I should be doing in life. Those were, those were pretty helpful-ish, but... Um, I think uh, to quote Christoph of Arendale, I want to get this right. And uh, that's exactly where we're at. We want to get it right in anything that we do. But when we, get, uh, when, we, when we look around, we try and figure out what is right. How do we know what's right? So we research. We do consumer reports. We ask around. We get testimonies from here or there, just someone's uh, use of a thing. Or, or we mass data and start reading endlessly to try and figure out what is the most informed decision that we can make, hoping that that most informed status gets us to right decision status. You know, as, uh, as, as consumers, you know, we have this, this idea, if we make the wrong decision, there's a feeling, we've named it, it's, uh, it's called buyer's remorse, and right? As, as good, tried and true American consumers, we know that that is one of the worst sins you could commit is to have buyer's remorse. We never want to have that. I had that a lot this week uh, as, um, you know, as we, we make these decisions certain ways. There's some people like me, when you get to a menu, I'm not picky. I don't have a whole lot of allergies. I thank God for that always. I just like point at a menu and go with it for, for, for better or worse. This week, Steve Duffy and I went out to eat lunch. It was a bad decision. I made a bad decision. That's what I call the hot dog of regret. Um, it, was, it was bad. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it tasted great. And then right about here is where it just went. It was, it was not okay. Um, so, so we make good decisions. We make bad decisions. Hot dog of regret and remorse happens every so often. But this is all fun when we're talking about things like hot dogs. It's a, it's a lot more serious when we're talking about, you know, what's our career? What's our house? Where are we going to live? Where are we sending our kids to school? What are we doing? That stuff's, that's a little more serious. It gets infinitely serious when we're talking about life and death, when we're talking about things about the afterlife, eternal life, purpose in life. And so I think that's kind of where the people are at here in, in John 7. We're a lot like the people here asking a ton of questions because we know that the stakes are pretty high when it comes to someone who might be or not be the Messiah, the one who will save his people. And so kind of the question that we're going to be asking for, uh, for all these people uh, today is uh, the main question is, who is this man? 
Uh, they're trying to figure out, who is this Jesus guy? Who is this Messiah guy? Are these the same guy or not? And it means a whole lot to them. It also means a lot to us. So rather than maybe eventually getting to the answer, I'm going to give you the answer up front. Who is this man? Jesus is the only source of living water. So come to him and drink. So the questions that we're going to, uh, that I'm going to ask to get us through our text today here, uh, where is he from? Where is he going? Why did he come? What do we do? Knowing who this Jesus is. And so before we, um, before we get going here, just a little bit of background. Verse 25 picks up in the middle of the story. It's, a, it's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, just after Jesus is taught in the temple, uh, verse 14, uh, he's been teaching in the temple where he's defended his divinely commissioned message, his Sabbath healing. He's warned all those. And verse 24 is an important one here. Uh, Do not judge by human appearances, but judge with right judgments. And so as we resume the story here today in verse 25, we're going to find out that the Jewish religious leaders and the crowd, they hear Jesus say that and then just charge straight ahead, ignoring it, judging by human appearances left and right. It's kind of ironic. It's kind of comical. But before we get too far into our our chronological snobbery and say those people of the old, they're so silly and dumb, we do the same. These uh, these people, uh, all these characters, all the different groups that are here in this passage, uh, I believe are, are someone intended to be a foil to us to kind of examine our own hearts. How do we respond to who Jesus is? Whether we are an unbeliever, uh, we have not yet confessed our sins to Christ, or whether we are Christians still needing to consider who Christ is. So as we read through this, maybe not just the next half hour, but through the rest of the week, as you reflect on this, who are you in this story, and, and how do you need to come to Jesus and drink life-giving water? So our first point here is, where does Jesus come from? Verse 25, uh, you can follow along there. Uh, There is speculation among uh, the people that this man is the one that the Jewish leaders seek to kill. I'm kind of summarizing what's in that passage there. Um, They do seek to kill him in chapter 5, verse 18, we find this. But finding it odd that these leaders still allow Jesus to speak in the temple like this during the feast... They suppose that maybe the religious leaders, and I quote here, verse 26, really know that this is the Messiah. Maybe they know the truth. But it doesn't last long, verse 27, trusting their own interpretation of Scripture over the religious leaders, they conclude this man's probably not the Messiah. So what's at stake here in this part of our our passage? Why is it so important for them to know where Jesus came from? Well, ultimately, it seems like they're questioning Jesus' authority. I mean, they're asking questions that are, that are somewhat like, what gives you the right to speak like this? And so, in verse 28 and 29, Jesus tells them again publicly in the temple something like this. My, uh, my, my summary, these are the verses uh, there, four sentences. He says, you know a lot about me. You know about where I came from, uh, though you don't seem to be very interested in knowing me as a person, which is kind of the point of my message. You know, he, uh, he, he says uh, back there in uh, John 3, if we're Bible readers, John 3, Nicodemus, the, the, the teacher of Israel, has, has come to him and talked to him. He, Jesus already has said in the book of John, uh, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. 
for he gives the Spirit without measure. I mean, that's a pretty clear statement that we've already read in John. The one that God sends utters the words of God and gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus is going to bring this back and capitalize on it later in our passage. Jesus has also, though, said not just in secret to Nicodemus, but to the crowds, to the people, to the, to the Pharisees that may have been here. In John 5, 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They have the info, but it doesn't seem to be sufficient to them. You see, Jesus is saying, I am from God. He has sent me. And because of that, I bring his message. I bring his spirit and I bring eternal life that comes through him. There's a whole lot hanging on the fact that Jesus comes from God. And so, as I said, Jesus gives us four sentences there, and he says things like, the one God that we agree is there is true. He's real. This is a real God. You don't know him relationally. You know about him, but you don't know him. You're proving that because of the way that you act. I do know him relationally is his third sentence there. And then he says, he's in fact the one that sent me to proclaim his message. So Jesus is responding to them, I do have the authority to speak as I do because I'm carrying a message from him who sent me. Verse 30 then, Jesus' words are heard by the religious leaders and they respond by seeking to arrest him. But verse 31, not all were hostile to Jesus' message. We read that many of the people believed in him but it's kind of funny. It's like we want to think, oh, these people, they're so great. But also, they're like us. They believed in him. But then even though Jesus had already told them back in John 5, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, he just told them that. They then go on in that verse 31 to wonder if the miraculous signs are sufficient evidence that he's the Christ. I mean, I do that in my own prayers. I'm like, God, show me the way. Thank you with 79 more proofs, please show me the way. You know, it's like, come on, he just told you. Why, why do we keep as Christians continuing to say, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, before I really take that step? We're like these people oftentimes. Well, then we move on, on in our narrative here. Uh, we get to uh, our second point. Where is Jesus going? So when the officers, which are more like temple guards, arrive, they, uh, Jesus speaks to their desire to know more about him and what he's up to. Specifically, he tells them where he is going. Verse 33, he says, I'm going back to him who sent me. We've talked about this guy before. Unless you believe in me, and now this is my paraphrase, this, unless you believe in me or you know me relationally, you will continue judging by human appearances. You will miss out on the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with me. You will still remain in the dark and you will not find me that way. You see, believing in me is the only way to go where I am going. But since they're still judging by human appearances, which makes understanding Jesus' statements even more difficult, I suppose that maybe he's talking about explaining his, mystery, or his ministry northward up into you know, the diaspora, maybe making a way over to Greece. Now, us good, rational humans should be like, yeah, that's, that's probably what he's, he's doing. He's there so far off. He's not talking about Greece. He's talking about heaven. He'll develop this a whole lot more in John 14. Where I'm going, you can't come, but I will come back, and then you will go. 
Ultimately, what we get here is what I love to call a hot mess of confusion and frustration. They just are going everywhere. This looks a lot like when something happens, anything happens in the world, and then we get on the social media comments. It's exactly what it's reading like. Everyone's pointing a different direction and citing a different source. They're all wondering, what's his mission? What's he up to? Where's he going? Collecting more and more data all along the way and missing the entire point right in front of them. We do this. As we continue on into verses 37 to 39, it seems that Jesus is helping everyone out by actually asking the question they need to be asked. Why? Why did Jesus come? He says something. I mean, he's, I, I suppose that he's, he's thinking something like, you think you know about me. You think you know about where I come from. You think you know about my future ministry plans, but, but though you, you can't do any of that until you actually know me truly. And so we need to ask the question, why does Jesus come? And so if you're taking notes here, um, the Santiago family helped me correct my notes here after the, second, or the first service. Point one is, where does Jesus come from? Uh, then the second point is, where do you go? And the third point is actually, where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Uh, so I thought I'd, I'd completely missed it there. Whoops, <laughs> pastor fail there. Actually, I'm going to maybe stick with why has Jesus come? It seems more edifying. The, um, I really had to get back at them for correcting me. Uh, so, on the last day of the feast, the great feast, we read in verse 37, Jesus boldly answers the most important questions for them. And before we get there, we need to, uh, there's a lot packed into this idea of the feast. We don't normally read this with Western eyes and be like, oh yeah, Feast of Booths. So I'm going to help us a little bit. And uh, so buckle up, here comes a, a wonderful history lesson. What is the Feast of Booths? Well, the Feast of Booths was originally a harvest festival celebrated in September or October. Festivities lasted about seven days, throughout which the themes of water and light are central reminders of God's provision for his people during the wilderness wandering, right? It's God's provision during the wilderness wandering. He was the fire before them, and so there's light. He was the water that came from the rock. And so these are the two symbols, the two elements that they, they use to remember God's provision during the wilderness wanderings. They were actually giving these instructions to celebrate this while they were wandering with Moses in the wilderness. You can find that in Leviticus 23, the, the first instructions for it. However, if we read later on in the history, uh, as we read the Bible, a bunch of archaeological text, historical data here, Nehemiah 8 17 says that the festival had not been celebrated since the time the Israelites came into Canaan, the promised land, some 800 years prior. I mean, that, that blows my mind. I, I felt like I knew a lot of Bible stories there. As soon as, uh, I think 8.17 says, uh, Nehemiah 8.17 says, uh, as soon as you know, they celebrated with Joshua, and then that was it. It's like, it's like, uh, the, the greed you try to, uh, to, to thwart on Christmas morning when you open a present, and you're like, now remember we say thank you before we start playing with the thing, right? That's not what the Israelites are doing here. They get into the judges and all the kings. None of the kings celebrated the Feast of Booths. They never remembered in solemn ceremony the provisions in the wilderness. I mean, that's just wild to me. They almost immediately stopped thanking God for his provisions once they stepped foot in the land that he gave them. 
It's common for people like, like them, like us, to stray from God, to lose gratitude for God when we neglect his life-giving word. And we find this isn't the first time that the Israelites discover, oh, there's a text that we should be reading. This is like the second time. Nehemiah, under Nehemiah in about 445 B.C., resumed reading Scripture. And when they did, they said, Eureka, we got a feast of booths we should celebrate. And they made sure to read the Law of Moses, the first five books that, count, that recount the wilderness journey. They, remain, they made sure that that became a part of every day of the feast. So why all of that? Not because, I mean, one, history is phenomenal, too. This is amazing amount of, of, of literature that's coming together here, but also it's incredibly important for what Jesus is about to say here. The people with Jesus are hearing this story every day of the feast. I'll summarize it. A summary is given to us in Nehemiah 9, verses 15 through 20. You can read along on the screen here. It says, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them by the way, uh, the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from, the mouths, uh, from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. This is what they're remembering, and they're hearing this every day. Historically speaking, though, this, this is the last record that we have in the Bible until about 400 years later when Jesus shows up, when he comes into the world. So we need to go to other historical data outside in between that, what we call the intertestamental time, to find out how did something that was forgotten and just started become such a big thing in Jesus's time as we're reading about right now. Well, we go to uh, places like um, Josephus is a historical writer that writes about this. We go to the rabbinical writings um, that, are, uh, that basically develop this, this tradition here. And we find in some of them, I'll, I'll condense a lot of all the festivities that happen, is one, there's, they, they build booths out of palm branches or some other things to commemorate their tents that they, that they dwelt in, the tabernacles that they, they, that they uh, dwelt in. Um, but then also, something else happens here. It says... Uh, on the last day of the feast, which verse 37 calls the great day, a priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam, we've read about that in John 5, and carry it in solemn procession to the altar where it is suggested he poured it out. A reminder, the story is being read, the water is drawn, the water is poured out. This is what's happening. And it's in this context, on the great day, with the book of law being, being read, the water drawing and pouring that Jesus doesn't say or quietly teach, our Bible here says he cried out for all to hear. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's incredible. Jesus is saying that he is the only source of living water here. 
The author's note in verse 39, that's for us as readers, it greatly helps us to understand that he's speaking of giving the Holy Spirit. That was foretold by the prophet Joel in Joel 2, 28. Remember what we read in Nehemiah 9, 15. The feast was to remember that the Lord gave them water. It says, quote, water for them out of the rock for their thirst. When we read ahead into 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 10, 4, we find that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, interpreted what happened there in those events with that rock, and he tells us, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That is, the water in the wilderness came from Jesus, the Messiah. Can you imagine this scene? During a feast to remember this miraculous provision, Jesus stands up and reaches through some 1,500 years of real history and real writings, and he cries out in the temple in Jerusalem during the feast, all of this, me. I fulfill it all. So come to me and drink. That's incredible. And somewhat confusing for these people. Verses 40 through 50, uh, 52, we'll, we'll finish our story here. I think it gives us some really helpful responses of the people in light of something so magnificent as this statement here. So our fourth and final point, how will you respond today? I'll give you four principles here uh, and, and, uh, and a whole bunch of characters so maybe we can uh, make sense of what a right response for where you're at right now with Jesus should be. Verse 40, we get to the crowd. And the principle is knowledge about Jesus is not a relationship with Jesus. I mean, we hear Jesus say this wonderful thing. And it's like the crowds then just return to their studies and pin up more yarn lines to complete their detective-like matriculations of the Messiah. It's like, I mean, you just read with me there. It's, it's, this is really the prophets. Others, this is Christ. But someone's, the Christ is from Galilee. The, the scripture said the Christ comes from offspring of David and then Bethlehem. And now they're all confused here. Maybe the village where David was. They don't really have any idea what they're talking about. They're quoting a whole bunch of good stuff. It's chaos. The word there for division is schism. They're all divided. Your deepest thirst will never be quenched if you only research the various water companies and religions. You need hydration. You need salvation, which requires you and I to continually come to Christ for answers, correction, and hope. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Knowledge about Jesus is not a relationship with him. You need relationship with Jesus Principle two, think critically, not cynically. Those are different things. St. Anselm, 11th century theologian, he gave us helpful phrase for thinking through this. Uh, his phrase is faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. By this, he doesn't mean 
that eventually faith must give way to understanding, as though faith is the zero entry to real thinking and then we move into understanding. That's not what he means there. Uh, we treat faith that way sometimes, though. Uh, nor does he, uh, does he mean a certain kind of understanding that requires faith. So it's like this secret religious you know, knowledge of something that, that real common sense people won't ever understand because they haven't drank the Kool-Aid. That's not what he's meaning there either. Rather, what, what Anselm's phrase, faith-seeking understanding, means is something like an active love of God that seeks a deeper knowledge of God. I think if we generalize that a little bit more into a, maybe a secular context, the knowledge of God is good for all. That's just a reality. The knowledge of God is good for all. Faith-seeking understanding is the humble, objective, with right judgment approach to knowing God. That approach is what we need to be focused on. It's similar maybe to the request of the boy's father in Mark 9 who says, I believe, help my unbelief. So I wanted to set that up because we have maybe three examples of some characters here that uh, think critically or cynically. We'll start with the cynics. Let's look, at, uh, let's look at verse 47. The heart of the Pharisees on display by their words when the, uh, the temple officers or the, uh, the temple guards come back empty-handed. They lay, their, they lay their hand. They show their heart there. Who is this man? We ask everyone of this text. And the Pharisees answer, he's a deceiver. Their hearts are cynical. So information, any and all information, as we see throughout the book of John, is only processed as evidence against Jesus. As a recovering cynic myself, that's hard to sit under the teaching of God if you have a cynical heart. It's hard to be in relationship with other people if you have a cynical heart. If you're just convinced, now they're out to get me. This isn't good. Nothing you hear. We'll be all right. This is where the Pharisees are, and it's going to lead them to horrible, horrible ends. But then we look at some other characters here. Not so cynical. Verse 45 and 46, the temple guards. They were sent to arrest Jesus in verse 32. They didn't arrest Jesus in verse 45. They're pressed by the Pharisees for a reason why they came back into Hamden, and they say... This man is different. Oh, they don't have anything else. They can't deny that they've stood in the presence of someone who is utterly different than anyone they've ever known. I mean, this kind of faith, I, I honestly, I envy. This is like the faith of my mom who's like, Jesus is so wonderful. I'll say, okay, help me understand why God exists. And she's like, it doesn't matter. I've experienced something that I can't explain. There have been miracles in my life God has sustained me in ways that science can't explain. He's real. Believe. And I say, that is wonderful, Mom. Give me some more proof. <laughs> we do that. We need to be more like these temple guards. All they've got is, I don't know what happened, but this guy is for real. Lord, give us that posture. We get another guy the informed, critically thinking Nicodemus, verse 50 and 51. In chapter 3, he's referred to as the teacher of Israel. He knows some things. 
But in his critical, not cynical, thought, he goes to Jesus humbly, honestly, to have a conversation and ask some questions, to learn what is this reality you're speaking of? And so it's fitting that Nicodemus steps in right now and he suggests that they give Jesus a fair trial. My paraphrase of of what he says here is, uh, maybe we should consider things a little further, guys. Maybe we should uh, look into his words. I love it when, when older, wiser men give me little hints like this. Maybe you've experienced this where you're just all like trying to figure out, yeah, I got the problem. This is area. I got the solution. This is great. I got the actual, everything that needs to happen needs to go on this. And, and, and a wise man steps in and he says, maybe this. What he's saying in those moments, this is for you young guys, if, we, if you haven't figured out, when he's saying maybe this, he's meaning this, you need to get there. And so maybe this is what Nicodemus is doing. Maybe we should think about this some more, guys. Sure seems like Nicodemus heard the point of Jesus that people might have eternal life, and he's thinking through this himself. To which then, comically, ironically, the Pharisees, they get even more worked up, and then the response that I and my immaturity imagine is a lot like the dad in Christmas story. They get all upset because their leg lamp is broken, the their plans are all here, whatever, and they get so furious, and they give like the ultimate, not a finger! It's like, no, no prophets from Galilee. Like, what is this, guys? You're just ridiculous. You're like, you just lost it. Like, cool down. And that's the resolve here. Like, they, it's too late. The thing's broken. That the prophet's been released. Like, this, this is on, he's on the move. Well, we'll find out that this story continues to accelerate. But I've got two more principles for us. You see, as we, as we uh, think through this, at some point, apologetics must give way to repentant faith. An apology, uh, just speaking definition, is a reasonable defense of an idea of a belief. And so then apologetics is not just apologizing and saying sorry all the time. Uh, an apologetics then is the, is the process of reasoning through the data and information available for the purpose of making, uh, forming an idea, an opinion, or a judgment. I mean, it's fleshly speaking, it would seem then that more evidence gives you more clarity. And so we go searching for these evidences and the information. We all thirst for the answers, for clarity about our lives. Jesus invites us all to drink from him for the answers of life beyond the grave. In this way, I think drink means to believe in Jesus as the only answer to these questions we ask. I mean, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, and now in Scripture, through His Spirit, says to us, a couple, a couple chapters back, John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He will never thirst again. His desires for the deepest answers will be satisfied. And not only satisfied, but they will be the beginnings of a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what Jesus says here in verse 39. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Spirit will come as living water. Our fourth principle, final principle, repentant faith begins a journey 
through the wilderness of this life. I think sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit coming as like that badge, like that Boy Scout badge. We worked really hard, we got it, and then you're like, there it is, and now we move on. Um, it's like we, like all of our life, the point is to become a Christian. It's not actually the point of our life. The point of our life is to grow in Christ. Becoming a Christian starts that journey. Second Corinthians 5 says this is the beginning of your new life, and that's what sanctification, there's salvation that comes the Spirit comes to guarantee that He will be with us. We will be there throughout all of this. It will all be accomplished as we grow into Him who is Christ. We grow up in every way. This journey involves the ongoing sanctifying work of dying to ourselves every day through humility, repentance, faith, hope, love. And so drinking from Christ for the living water of the Holy Spirit is not only for salvation, it is also for the lifelong journey through the wilderness of this life, which is purposed for your and my sanctification. We cannot take this journey without water. We cannot take this journey without the Holy Spirit. And so we need to drink from Christ. Maybe this is why the Lord prophesied through Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Isaiah 55, 1. Note the word there, everyone. Those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus need to come to the waters. So Christians die to self daily. Drink of Christ daily. Live by the Spirit daily that you might produce the fruit of the Spirit. You see, all of these questions and speculations, they, they, they seem to lack an element of trust. They just don't trust that Jesus is out for the best, similar to maybe how we interact with God or read Scripture or pray. Questions we should be asking as we learn from this text, do you trust the historically proven account of this man? Do you trust the nudge of the Spirit when you are sinning, enough to turn, or do you rationalize away your sin, thinking more of morality? Do you trust the values and the convictions of the crowd more than the one who has the words of eternal life? There are many wells to drink from, but there's only one that has living waters. And so the question is, who is this man? It's Jesus Christ. Who do you trust? What are you really thirsting for? I'm going to finish here by reading uh, an excerpt from uh, Brendan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust. There's a story in it. It reads, When John Kavanaugh, the noted and famous ethicist, went to Calcutta, he was seeking Mother Teresa. And he was seeking more. He went for three months to work at the house of the dying, to find out how best he could spend the rest of his life. When he met Mother Teresa, he asked for her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for? She replied. Then he uttered the request that he had carried thousands of miles. Clarity. Pray for clarity. No, said Mother Teresa. I will not do that. And when he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and you must let go of. When Kavanaugh said that she always seems to have clarity, the very kind of clarity he was looking for, Mother Teresa laughed and said, oh, I have never had clarity. 
What I have always had is trust. So, I will pray that you trust God. Jesus is the only source of living waters. So come to him and drink. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are holy. You are infinite. You are wise. You are all-powerful. You are beautiful. Thank you for giving us your word and your spirit by which we can know the historical reality of Jesus Christ and all that he is, all that he fulfills, and all that he promises. Thank you for bringing us into the deeper reality than what we often think about and dealing with it. I pray from these words here in, uh, in, in John 7, God, that you, would, uh, that you would, if there is anyone here that is... Um, as an unbeliever uh, that, that, that doesn't believe that Jesus Christ actually died for the forgiveness of their sin, or maybe even doesn't even believe that they have sin, I pray that, that you, by your Spirit, would convict them by, uh, by, by reading Scripture, by talking with Christians, that you, would, that you would help them to come to terms with the actual deepest, realist question they should be asking, can I be forgiven of my sins? The answer is yes. In Jesus Christ, drink. For those of us who are Christians, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, light a fire, that we, 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 we turn from our always analyzing, not trusting, questioning everything kind of lukewarm living. Help us to drink from you. That the Holy Spirit would be there, and not simply that the Holy Spirit would be there, but that it would be an abundance welling up from within us that would move us toward proclaiming salvation in Jesus Christ to those around us. It's nice that you provide for us each week. Please move us beyond just sustaining life. Move us out into the mission field and tell people that they need Jesus Christ. I pray that you would move Stonebridge Church to be a place that seems to have a whole bunch of temple officers, temple guards there who say, uh, people come in and they say, God, I don't know what's going on. This is different. These people have seen something that they they are utterly convinced of. I pray that by your spirit you would move and increase, that we would trust you more and more each day, and that all of this would then produce itself in proclaiming you in thought, word, and deed through the love of God in Christ Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.